In life, we will experience both setbacks and success. When we learn from those experiences, we grow in wisdom. On this podcast, we will share and discuss the wisdom we have gained from life. Hi, and welcome to the Color of Wisdom podcast. I'm Mel Mitchell, your host. Today, we're meeting with Dr. Sosina Wood. She's a presidential postdoctoral fellow in biomedical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, College of Engineering. She has a PhD in bioengineering from the University of Pittsburgh, also a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from the University of Pittsburgh. In addition to that, she's also a past two-term chair from the National Society of Black Engineers. Welcome, Susina. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. Thank you. And, and so today, I want to learn a little bit about like your about your journey, and if you could also share what you've learned on your journey, you know, going from the academic side, talk about some of the pitfalls that you might have experienced, and also the successes that you've had in your endeavors and the things that you've done and are doing. So getting a PhD in bioengineering, that's not an easy task. That's not an easy thing to do. No, it isn't. (laughs) And so curious, what led you to say, hey, you know what? That's what I want to go get. So what led me to that was uh, a series of things. When I was getting ready to go into graduate school, we were in the midst of the recession. 2008 is when the recession hit and the options became limited in terms of what you wanted to do. And so for me, originally, I went to electrical engineering um, for my bachelor's to want to work on learning devices for children and work for TI Instruments or a similar company. But I was advised that that type of um, kind of industry was somewhat diluting it. And so I began to learn various things in my curriculum. And I got to a point where I just realized it didn't feel fulfilling. And so what was hot at the time was the kind of earlier generations of the iPod or the iPad phone and and signal processing in your car, automotive, um, automated systems. But for me, it really came down to learning that I personally like to help people. And so I had a few experiences working on things to help people. And one of my senior design projects was building an artificial pacemaker out of MATLAB. And from that, I said, hmm, this is interesting. Like I can use signal processing for something like this you know, to intertwine in medical devices. So I took a few courses. I had done a co-op, which, you know, you rotate kind of like an internship every other semester and realized that I just wasn't for working for a company. And so research at the time didn't necessarily seem like something that I wanted to do until I started doing it. So I worked with my research advisor, MRI machines, and I really liked the experience. And all the experiences that I had in the research world and working with people, that that is where I found myself being most excited. Wow, fantastic. So so along your journey, you tried some different things. Yes. And then the research just just spoke to you. Yes. You liked that experience, you liked the learning. And while you were learning about research and participating in it. As you dove deeper into what did you find most challenging? What 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 kind of, you know, turned on that light bulb for you? Yeah, um, what's most challenging is, well, for me, going from electrical engineering to bioengineering, I hadn't seen any biology material since the ninth grade of high school. Wow. And so 
that terminology and having to learn neuroscience and take a neuroscience course and how people just learn memorizing certain things was not what I was used to. Um, so for me, just kind of first learning the terminology during the, one of the summer research programs that I did called pre-PhD at University of Pittsburgh, I spent time just learning all of the acronyms that are in the MRI world. And once I kind of like tackled that, I felt better, like, okay, maybe I can transition from electrical engineering to bioengineering. But my, my first year of my graduate degree, I ended up taking a neuroscience class. And I took that class, but I dropped out of it because I said, at this rate, I don't think that I'm going to get a healthy grade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me just continue to learn. Um, and so being in a class, you can still learn things, but learning something at an accelerated rate, which neuroscience students already had seen this material, I didn't necessarily need to go through that. So I just sat in that course and it really helped. Um, because I was working on um, brains anyway. So I needed to know the terminology, but I didn't need to learn it inside out. Like them, you know. Okay. So, so you sat in you audit it and you're yeah. in a class just for the learning. Yeah. Just for the, just for the learning. Okay. And, and, and just for that, you know, when we were stepping into, into things and, and focused on the learning, amazing things come out. Yeah. And, and we're oftentimes, we, we surprise ourselves, uh, during that time period. And and when it comes to learning and, and having people that you learn with, what did your support group or team look like? Oh, man. I will say I'm someone who's been blessed to find support and use support appropriately. So for me, through grad school, my support was very different on a, a lot of different levels. At the actual School of Engineering, we have a diversity program catered towards underrepresented minorities um, pursuing PhDs and masters. So that was a sports group of colleagues going through the process, uh, kind of understanding what it's like to be the only one. So for me, it was interesting because in electrical engineering, I was the only African-American at the, at the time in my, my graduating class, as well as one of three women. Wow. So when I got to grad school and I got into my lab, I became the only American, right? And mm. so the interesting thing was that my colleagues' perspectives of what America was like was for the first time through an African-American woman lens, which was so interesting. But um, they became my support group, too. I really appreciated the people that I worked with um, in grad school. I think through Nesby, you know, just gaining mentors. Uh, and those that were in academia, such as, you know, Dr. Adams, Dr. May, or even individuals like you, just having sounding boards as you experience different things in different worlds, helped me have that balance and um, perspective to keep going. Yes. And, and having that perspective to keep going, what, what, yeah. would, you, what would you say was your, your most challenging experience while uh, pursuing your, your doctorate? Two things. I think one perspective was being national chair was definitely a challenge because you have to balance individuals' perceptions of where they think your work is going. And so when you're traveling often and you're not seen as in the lab, like every grad student is supposed to be seen as only in the lab and the lab only, but that isn't necessarily the only place to be to do work. 
And so balancing that perspective with my advisor first year was challenging because I think he didn't necessarily tell me how he felt about things. What he did was communicated to the department chair and we had a transition in department chair. So the first department chair was very much on board with what I was doing, um, endorsed it, put money towards my campaign and everything. The second department chair was kind of like, eh, we're willing to endorse you, but only if your advisor likes it. And so that forced me and my advisor to kind of have more serious conversations, which I think were fruitful in the end. Another thing that was challenging for me in grad school is when my my dad, he became uh, really sick. So I had to go home for a few weeks, almost three weeks to a month and help out. Um, and it was kind of a thing that was known between my advisor and I, if things happen, um, such as him being in the ICU, which he was, then that was just the understanding that I would just need to go home for that certain amount of time. So that took a toll on me because um, my dad and I are very close. Um, I'm very much a daddy's girl. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like one person who's your confidant, who you think will always be there for you, always strong. It's kind of now your turn to be there for them. And so it made me internalize a lot of friendships and things that I had that I, I thought were people were close. And, you know, you just you just go through things. So I think grad school is a it's a maturing place. It's an opportunity for you to grow personally, of course, educationally. But you see a lot of things between you do a lot of comparisons between you and your friends. So your friends are doing these things, but you're still trying to focus and get things done. All the while you're growing, you know, so those those are the two things that for me were were kind of, you know, tough moments. Yeah. Yeah. Because oftentimes trying to balance that life and work or life and school is hard. Right. Yeah. And, and especially when you're dealing with, you know, a family member's health or someone, you know, like your parents that, that are so close to you. Everywhere we go, we are that person. So it's not like we compartmentalize what's going on in our life, and then we'll just deal with that a little bit later, but it, it carries yeah. with us. Yeah. And so with that, with that, you know, while those things were going on, what role did your faith play? Big, I think, oh, well, many, many occasions. First, just getting into grad school, I didn't, I didn't think that I was going to pursue another degree, especially not a PhD. I thought maybe an MBA, but after, you know, I go live life and it just it just seemed that God had something else in store for me. I would say every big leap that I had, God and people around me were motiva- motivating forces for me to go where I needed to go. And so me choosing directions of such like a lot of times I question things like, OK, well, why can I go to grad school? If I go to grad school, is my GPA going to be higher, you know? Because in undergrad, I struggled somewhat in electrical engineering. And um, I had points where my GPA started off like a 3.2 and then it dropped to a 2.5. And then I had to play that game to get my scholarship back. Because um, it fit. Once you go below a 3.0, you have to get your scholarship back. And so I had to chase that, that grade. And, you know, my last few semesters continued to get a 3.2 or higher just to have above a 3.0 when I graduated. And so that struggle in itself, grad school is going to be more difficult. I'm like, well, how can I do this? You know, so definitely it was prayers. It's funny to look back at Facebook now and, you know, you have the memory section 
And you can see what you said 10 years back. Mm. And I can see mm. myself 10 years ago, a lot of the, these faith-based conversations that I'm having, like I'm putting the faith out there. You know, the pastor might have said a sermon that spoke specifically to me to go pursue what I wanted to do. And me going to grad school was a leap of faith. And my first semester of grad school, I got a 4.0. Wow. My first year, I got a 4.0. And at the time, I was region two chair of Nesby. And I'm like, psyching myself out, talking to Donna O or Dr. Uh, Donna O. Mackie Johnson. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, her name has changed. Um, but, you know, I just, I didn't see how I could do it because I didn't have people in my family that had done it. So, like, if I'm going to do it, I have to do it well. And I did it well, but faith was a lot of, of it. So, you know, anything before I do, I pray about it. I'm very decisive on that, on on who's speaking to me and discerning if this is the right direction or if it isn't. So faith play, plays a big role for me. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for, for sharing that part. Now, oh, no problem. So, so I'm going to, you've already touched a little bit on it, but I'm going to go ahead and dive into this, you know, because we both have a similar passion, right? You know, like course yeah. for engineering and, and mm-hmm. knowing you know, you, like, you're also highly focused on increasing the number of culturally responsible black engineers who yes. excel academically, succeed professionally, and positively impact the community. You've, prob- yes. you've probably said that once or twice or a thousand <laughs> times. And for, for our listeners, that's actually the mission of the National Society of Black Engineers. And you're a two-time national chair. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what that experience being in that space and leading an organization such as that, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, um, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> but in a nutshell, such such a growth period. I was sharing recently with a few students that every level of Nesby has offered me something different. So at the chapter level was the first time that I broke out of my shyness because I'm naturally shy, but when I need to speak up, I'll speak, but I'm shy. Um, so the chapter level is when I broke out of it amongst my peers. The regional level is where I realized that I had a voice and a story to tell that was actually motivating to people beyond just my peer group, but other people who were resonating and experiencing the same thing. And if we want to you know, achieve the mission, then we need to motivate ourselves to move forward, as our founders did. And so national chair for me was the experience which I had to grow the fastest. So I was 24 when I was elected. So that means my experience from 24 to 26, I was over at the time, which we had about 30,000 members internationally and nationally and a staff of 30 something and growing a transition of executive director. And, you know, just, just a lot of things were happening. And for me, it was more than what I expected that I would get out of the experience. I think going into the experience, I thought it would be, you know, grooming and, you know, leading people, but not all that came with it. And so for me, one of the most challenging experiences I had was kind of people's perception of what my leadership style was and is. And I am someone that listens. I try to, you know, hear for the most part what the group is saying, but being around a bunch of people, opinionated people who feel like they can tell you what to do, 
um, was both both very aggravating. Um, and at times it was demotivating, especially because some of these people were people who you felt were your peers. And so for me, um, you know, we do the disc assessment, you find out what your personality is and what have you. And some, some of my weaknesses and being whatever persona, I think my personality always jumps around for whatever reason, but being around a bunch of people who are D's, our dominant uh, personalities, my personality can come off as meek, you know, and meek is such a word that also seems weak, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not at all that it's like that. And so I think a lot of times when people see females in leadership, they think that you have to be authoritative and and boisterous and and bossy, you know, and I think I'm bossy in my own right. But at the same time, I like to empower people and I don't think people necessarily got that. And so um, much of that challenge and much of that going forth was very interesting. Uh, when I ran um, for national chair the second time and all the people in the world decided that they were going to run against me. But I think winning that election the second time was proof to myself, which I didn't question if I could win again. But I think it was proof to other people you know, who had doubted me. And so that in itself was interesting. Leading a staff um, was interesting because you were all experienced. I didn't necessarily have that experience. So I was learning while I was vice chair, but I didn't have that experience of being able to, you know, set salaries, um, negotiate salaries, uh, be able to, you know, tell people they're going to get bonuses or not get bonuses. And then the pushback that you get when you're representing not just your own opinion, but other people's opinion that also impacts, you know, people's families, you know, these aren't easy decisions. And so to learn those decisions and um, not necessarily decisions, but just to learn the outcome of that for me was very impactful because it helped me really stick to what I believe in, you know, no matter how people try to sway you and people really will try to sway you that I think really helps me now. And And in my role now, I just feel like I have so much experience that uh, is not always used as appropriately, but in so many ways, like how can you convey that you've run a big organization and you've led a lot of people to implement a vision where the everyday person that isn't a part of the National Society of Black Engineers will understand, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that that to me, a lot of times I feel as though I have so many talents and I'm, I'm sitting on them. But I know that a lot of the things that I I gained from that experience will come to light at some point in my life. So as you, you know, like as being the national chair, right? You're you're responsible for as as you've already called out, you know, managing the staff, working with a lot of organization, attending a lot of you know various conferences, speaking on the behalf of the organization. But you also get an opportunity to spend time in the community and yes. spend time with kids and spend time with educators and and those in the other STEM environment. What were some things that you would say that might have surprised you as you dove into working in the community? Yeah, I didn't think that I would fall in love with it as much as I did and still do, you know. And that was really one of the funnest things of being national chair, you know, going to places like Oakland, California, or Ferguson, Missouri, where we were in, um, and connecting with people that are having similar experiences. 
but can also tell you better the national narrative or the narrative that's happening in their community that nationally was told differently. So the things of Ferguson and what happened with Mike Brown and and all of the the unrest in our community from our young black brothers being slain by, you know, police officers. What really happens? And a lot of times when that happens, especially in Ferguson, things such as that has been going on, you know, for a while. There's there's deep history there. And when we see it, it's just that it's reached its peak. Mm-hmm. So for me, learning from those individuals, I was inspired. I didn't realize how many of my mentors have come up through that community. And it was just very touching, you know? So every time that I went somewhere, uh, I visited from Jackson, Mississippi, and um, the people that I met there and the history of Jackson, Mississippi, you just have an internal appreciation of not only the organization, but the people that are there. And then also kind of like who they're descendants of, right? You get to learn a little bit of of U.S. history, too. And so I appreciated that. And I think it kind of pushed me forward. And it was a catalyst for me to work in the community here in Pittsburgh and work with the students, which I um, tremendously appreciated. And and so for working in the community, you've gained a lot from it, right? Yes. And so what advice would you have for those that are focused on driving a positive change in the community? Yeah, um, I think one, everybody before they jump in needs to spend time learning about whatever community that they plan to help change, kind of assess it from afar. Just don't come in and think that you can be the person to make the change. See where see where the community is and what particular points can you help them work through. For me, I I think the greatest gift is fighting yourself and your feelings, especially when you feel like, oh, I could be doing something great or you don't feel the gratification right away. It'll come and it's it's challenging. And so for me, waking up at Saturdays, every Saturday. um, So after national chair, I was a math instructor on the weekends, every Saturday and STEM instructor for um, the funds of, for the advancement of minorities through education here in Pittsburgh. And it's a program focused on getting uh, African-American and inner city Pittsburgh students uh, to go to private schools and boarding schools. And the experience that they get matches or surpasses um, their education that they're getting at the seventh or eighth grade when they're starting with us. And so every Saturday that I had to wake up, I didn't necessarily want to wake up at seven in the morning, (laughs) Mm. but I appreciated doing it later down the road and cultivating and bringing some colleagues along with me to work with these students. And so finding your friends to help makes a difference. But those students coming back to me maybe a year later and saying, thank you, Miss Asina, it's because of you helping me learning about algebra. I really understand it now and I'm able to do well in geometry or, you know, whatever math that they were taking in high school. That's the reward. You know, and so sometimes you feel as though every day you're going to hear those students say, great job. No, they don't necessarily want to see you either. (laughs) But the reward comes when that individual also grows on their own. Fantastic. And so when you look back on all these experiences that you've had, right, from undergrad, graduate school, leading Mm -hmm. a large, you know, 30,000 plus 
uh, member organization. How are you now a different leader because of these experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'm different because now I'm not, I'm very willing now to speak my mind and kind of, you know, how people perceive it is how they perceive it, but at least they will hear my truth and my thoughts of things. And I think uh, my experiences, my relationship with my previous research advisor and are just very authentic conversations where if I could just straight up tell him, I don't like this today, he would receive it. It really pushed me to not hold everything in. And I think a lot of times, a lot of us are trained, especially females to, you know, don't say this that way, or don't do this that way, or you can't do certain things because someone won't like it. But the reality is you just have to speak your truth. And so I think as a leader, I'm able to be confident in how I'm pursuing things, knowing that I'm going to do my due diligence, but also trusting myself going forward in my team. So I think that makes an incredible drive. I think there's authenticity there that people read and they could appreciate. But I've just I've just been through so much. And I just think that you can think from a from a, a different worldview when you've experiencing things differently. And it's not just your personal. You got to you got to see a lot of things, which I have, and I've got to hear a lot of things, which which makes me, you know, not just think from a selfish lens. So, so Dr. Wood, one last question for you. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, my advice is to to be the most authentic you that you can be to cherish you, to cherish your family, to cherish your friends, to cherish your experiences. If you're someone that gives and loves to give back, do that, but also do it with boundaries to make sure that you also are giving to yourself and your personal needs. And, you know, if if it's faith-based, make sure that you're keeping that first. If it's community-based, you know, put things in a certain order, but don't overwork yourself. And I think we are in a world where we have to feel that we're constantly on and you don't have to be constantly on. You don't have to be constantly connected to social media. You know, there are some experiences in life that are organic when the the noise of the world is not involved. So just enjoy the ride. Try to be in as present of the moment as you can. I know a lot of people want to focus on the future and already we're focusing on 2020, but what in 2019 do we just need to get right? You know, and so that's my thing. Just everyone needs to spend some time just working on themselves. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you again for your time. We, I Absolutely. really appreciate it. It's been a while since we've had a, a chance to really chat and talk, but I appreciate yes. the fact that you're sharing your insight, your experiences, and your wisdom with our audiences. Yes. And so, therefore, they can achieve more than what we've done, step over some of the pitfalls that we've experienced and and continue to grow. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks again, Dr. Wood. Thank you. This episode of The Color of Wisdom was produced by Drive Influence, which is a company that is focused on helping organizations, teams, and individuals solve their leadership and business challenges. It was recorded at the Innovation Media Enterprises Studio in Dallas, Texas. The sound engineer was Aaron Greger. The 
production manager was Sia Yasutorak.